Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, we'll be discussing the short story Snow Glass Apples by Neil Gaiman, originally published in 1994 by Dreevehaven Press in a chapbook to support the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, but reprinted many times thereafter. Yes, and we, or at least I, I guess, but I assume you as well, Brent, read it in Smoke and Mirrors, the short story collection, the Neil Gaiman short story collection, Smoke and Mirrors. This is a bonus episode, extra episode this month that we didn't let anyone know was coming. And the reason for that is that this is an episode that was commissioned by one of you. And that's an extraordinarily generous thing that gives us a really great impetus to to cover more material. And we're really, really grateful for that support and and grateful for the for the nudge, and I hope listeners enjoy the extra episode as well. Yeah, we're really appreciative of those who are willing and uh, find themselves able to provide any kind of monetary support to the network to keep any of our shows afloat, um, but also sometimes allowing us excuses to do other things that we maybe wouldn't do. And this is one of my favorite Neil Gaiman stories. I think it's a masterpiece of a story. It's one that has stuck with me since the very first time I read it and, of course, have now read it dozens of times since then. And the the gimmick here, right, is that Snow Glass Apples is a retelling of the Snow White story. But, of course, it's got a very Gaiman twist. And I'm actually just going to read the opening of this story right into the microphone. I do not know what manner of thing she is. None of us do. She killed her mother in the birthing, but that's never enough to account for it. They call me wise, but I am far from wise, for all that I foresaw fragments of it, frozen moments caught in pools of water or in the cold glass of my mirror. If I were wise, I would not have tried to change what I saw. If I were wise, I would have killed myself before ever I encountered her, before ever I caught him. So, we can see a few things right away. One, the, the story is in first person. This is the autobiography of the stepmother queen from the Snow White fairy tale. We also learn about her mirror. We learn that it maybe also gives her some ability to see the future. And we are going to get more on that later. We also get this great tease then about the stepdaughter, which is to say Snow White. We, we get this tease that she isn't quite human. We don't know what type of thing she is, but she's not quite human. This is just a masterful opening, Brent. I am just completely hooked. Just two paragraphs in, I have to turn all of these pages like as quickly as possible to find out what is going on in this story. I, I love it so much. Similar to you, this is maybe one of my favorite stories by him. I do find it terrifying in a lot of ways, um, which we'll get into as we go. But uh, I have trouble uh, and I frequently I have trouble frequently wanting to actually revisit reading it again, although I have also probably read it about a dozen times. And it's really well done. And because it is so well crafted in being uh, really a horror story, it, it it's very affecting in that way, um, in a way that, you know, I don't find other kinds of horror as affecting. Um, but it's it's a really great setup. I also find elements of this extremely scary, like genuinely scary, which I don't normally get even when I'm reading scary stories, even reading horror literature. I will be sure to point out a few of those places as we go, and I hope you will as well. But let's let's get really into the first part of the Queen's autobiography here. Now, she is not one of the elite of this realm. She's not uh, an aristocrat or anything like that. But the recently widowed king encounters her on a bridge and he falls for her. 
they marry. Now she's the queen. And of course, the king has a daughter from his previous marriage, uh, and his previous wife had died in childbirth. The daughter is five now, going on six. She's five, going on six. And after a few months of marriage, in which the the queen has her own quarters and she's largely left to her own devices, except for some evenings when her husband wants her, uh, the daughter one night comes to her quarters. The daughter, of course, has uncommonly pale skin and very dark eyes, and she says that she's hungry. The queen has some apples and gives her one, and it's actually a really tender moment. Uh, Seemingly, it is the first moment of affection between them, and otherwise they've not really had any kind of relationship. But uh, then the daughter clamps her sharp teeth onto the queen's hand and then stares her down into submission and sucks the queen's blood for a while. And then when the daughter leaves, the queen's wound heals immediately, and it leaves something that resembles an old scar. I mean, it is a scar, but it looks older than it actually is. And after this, the queen barricaded her room as, you know, just a matter of course, and and then even put bars on the windows for extra safety. And so it does seem here, just, you know, a few pages into the story, Brent, that we're dealing with some kind of vampire. Yeah, it does seem that that is the case. And I do want to mention that while the queen is not originally part of the nobility, she was a witch and she is a witch. (laughs) So she has that going for her and we'll see more of that play out as we go. So we've got a witch and we've got a vampire child and we've got the king and we don't know whether there's something up with him at this point um, other than the fact that he is a redhead and as a redhead, he must be magical in some way, right? Right. Oh, this is uh, this is a real deep cut, I think, for game in here. One of the things that uh, we'll talk about at the end of the story is to try to get at the the metaphysics of you know va- vampirism here. What's going on? Because we don't get a real origin story for how Little Snow White here became a vampire, and in fact, uh, this opening line of I, I don't know what type of thing she is is really a game insane and and it doesn't matter just accept that she's a vampire we don't need to know how she became one still I might ask you that question but famously right vampires are redheaded in Central and Eastern European folklore and giving the king this hair color I I have some questions about what's going on there also it is as you mentioned when you read the intro to this, the way that it's described, while we don't know the origin quite of um, the vampire daughter, it was phrased as she killed her mother in birthing, not her mother died in childbirth. So I think it's intentionally left ambiguous there or maybe even meant to imply that perhaps the daughter killed the mother as it was emerging into existence. Yeah, ate ate her way – out into the world or something like that, which is a horrifying image. Not not the last one that we'll get. This is actually probably a good place to pause and point out as well that our characters uh, don't have names and they're, they're never going to have names here. So I've just been using the queen, the king, the daughter, uh, but I think we may also occasionally just use Snow White, even though she's never actually called that here in the story. But I really like this as a feature of the story because it it preserves then some of this fairy tale language in which these characters are all kind of they're 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 really they're archetypes you know they're not really well fleshed out as as individual people uh, they are more so here in in Gaiman's version of this of course but I, I like this touch 
I like the touch because, as you said, it, it lets them be the archetypes that they are. But additionally, it also kind of has a almost a Lovecraftian bent to it in that by not naming the things, they become more terrifying, right? By naming and categorizing things, maybe they become less scary because we're able to, you know, fully fixate and show the light all around the object. But by keeping things slightly nebulous, even though we know we're talking about Snow White, by not calling it Snow White, by just having it be, you know, the child, the daughter, the creature, the monster, it plays in the archetype, but it also makes things fuzzier at the edges and therefore makes it a little more terrifying, I think, to human mind who likes to categorize things. Or at least I keep thinking of that episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer where she's having <laughs> a, a dream in which it's that men like to categorize things specifically, um, uh, while women are not necessarily bound by the need to file things, at least the way that the military men uh, in her life were depicted in that episode. Yeah, what's the line specifically there? The, we're we're making maps and putting labels on things. That might not be quite right, but it's something, something like, like that, that, and it's yeah. perfect. Yeah, which is yeah, <laughs> which I think is definitely at least the way that I'm interacting with with a lot of you know reality, frankly. And I think that you probably come to a similar place, which is just like if we can define a thing, it lets us even if we can't control it, at least we can better comprehend it. Um, but having the terror of the child and what the child can and can't do and what all is going on um, and some of the mysteries concerning the, the daughter make it more terrifying in the way that, you know, it is, it's a little more smartly done than just calling something the unnameable, right? Absolutely. I mean, and, and of course, I think for, for us specifically, I mean, you're a bureaucrat and I'm a teacher, right? And if, if there were ever two categories of people that, well, like categories and like to label things and put things in files and make maps, it's it's those two. So yeah, that's our that's our safe space. And we don't get any of that here. And that is perhaps part of what makes this story so unsettling for us. And it is just a brilliant move on on, on Gaiman's part. We should talk a little bit more, I guess, about the, the king, the father here. I did make a big deal out of his red hair. Though, though you started it for for reasons that aren't obvious on radio, but uh, nonetheless, uh, I should be clear that I don't think there's any indication that the king, the father, is a vampire. And one of the counter indications of that is that the daughter is also feeding on him, and the queen knows this because he too has scars that he didn't used to have, and in fact, he's he's covered in them uh, very quickly, actually. And his vigor is clearly flagging. He's emotionally distraught as well. We don't get any text from him or you know, speech, I mean, any direct speech, but the queen tells us that he cried with her and then he just wastes away and, and dies. So now we're actually at the point where the fairy tale begins. Uh, there's a daughter and then there's this stepmother who is the queen. And it is just the two of them now and the queen gives us another tease in her narrative. She says that if she had it to do over again, right at this moment, she would cut out the daughter's heart, disembowel her, chop off her limbs, and also behead her, and then also, also burn every single part of her. But she didn't. She didn't do any of those things. And now she is paying for that mistake. So that's a great hook that then moves us into the next act. And we learn what the queen did actually do. She did have servants remove the daughter from the palace and bring her to the forest. And the forest is 12 days long or 12 days wide. It's a territory that isn't part of any kingdom. It's full of outlaws and spooky things. People avoid it mostly. 
And she had the servants cut out the daughter's heart and then leave her for dead. And she knows that they did, though the stories all say that she was tricked by her huntsman who you know, brought her the deer of a heart or something like that. But the way that she knows that this really is the heart of Snow White that she has is that her servants gave her the heart and it was still beating when she took it. Uh, and she took it and hung it in her room with a bunch of garlic. And she does have the bars on her windows removed now, but still, for a long time, like years, she spent most sunsets watching the forest, thinking about her stepdaughter. And I just absolutely love this departure from the fairy tale, but I especially love the ominous mood that Gaiman builds here. And this is one of these moments where I was genuinely afraid while reading this story, which does not happen very often. But this this staring out at the forest, that just, it gives me chills just to think about it. It's also just a great bit of kind of adding some additional geography to the place because we had in the origin story for them when the queen met the king um, originally that she was near a bridge and you know there's a cottage so we've got a lot of kind of these tropey things but then here we've got the forest which is part of the kingdom but also we know instinctively from fairy tales like forests are where things hide and dark things are and we also know though that people do have to travel through the forests frequently. Oftentimes, I think in a Joseph Campbell kind of sense, you know, the call to adventure is needing to confront going into the forest, that it's not the wide open fields. You're not in the Shire, right? You're when you journey into the forest. You know, and this forest is, I think, bigger than the old forest. It's bigger than Fangorn. I mean, it's 12 days to go across it uh, on, on foot, I guess. And that is a long time. I mean, you can walk the width of England in three days. I mean, it's narrowest part, I guess. But this forest is utterly immense. It's you know bigger than any forest I've ever been in, and I've been in a lot of forests. So it is a fantastical forest, not just in terms of who lives there, but just or what lives there, but also in its extent, which is just awesome and is really eerie and ominous. And there's a lot that can live in that forest, which we we soon get into. Right. Yeah. Well, now we're about to get into the plot of the the fairy tale the way that we all know it. Of course, much changed by Gaiman, changed into this vampire story in which Snow White is, well, the, the baddie and not some heroic victim. But yeah, first, we do get a bit of world building. And we did already learn that this forest is fantastically large. Also, it's a spooky place. But it is not uninhabited. There are forest folk. They're they're strange. Uh, this is actually where the dwarves come in. Now, the dwarves in this story, they are not Tolkien's dwarves, just to keep uh, keep going back to the Shire or its and its uh, its adjacent territories. That the dwarves in this story are not Tolkien's dwarves. They're not even the dwarves of fairy tales that we're familiar with. They're simply people who happen to be short and hairy. Uh, and the queen even later on refers to them as the old inhabitants of this country. And then there are people with, I guess, what we might describe as medical conditions as well. I mean, these are people with deformed limbs. And so we can imagine that the forest folk are a combination of people who have been ostracized from the the towns and villages of the neighboring kingdoms and then taken refuge in the forest. But then also that's mixed with these native inhabitants who may have been pushed out of the agricultural zones by other people by by immigrants though we're we're never actually going to get any more on this but uh 
really what this matters for is that there is an annual fair. That's called the Spring Fair because, well, it happens in springtime. And at this fair, the forest folk come to shop. And the attitude of the merchants is is pretty terrible. Uh, They assume that the forest folk will steal if they're given the opportunity and, and, and that sort of thing. But the Spring Fair is not only for the forest folk. I mean, it does have this function as being this moment when the forest folk emerge from the forest and purchase things they might need for the year. But the Spring Fair also serves people from other realms who who travel here to this kingdom and, and travel through the forest in order to get here. And so it's a pretty big deal for the realm. But five years after the death of the king and, and also the dehearting of the daughter, the fair is dying because hardly anyone comes from the forest or comes through the forest anymore. And so the question is, why, right? What's causing this? And this is actually where we get the famous mirror, which is also the glass of the title. Uh, And you brought this up earlier, Brent, that we know from the start that the queen is, which is the word that you use. It's a word that does appear in the text as well. But the queen has some supernatural ability to see the future, uh, also to see things beyond you know, her area, you know, beyond what her eyesight can see. And she does this by scrying in a pool of ink. And she used to actually work at the Spring Fair with this ability. This was how she made a living or, or contributed to her family's uh, financial well-being. And she even once helped a merchant locate his missing horse. And so he gave her a black mirror in gratitude. And this black mirror, this is the mirror mirror on the wall. And she uses it now to see what is going on in the forest. And as we have all guessed, right, what is going on in the forest is the daughter. You know, sure, she doesn't have a heart, but that doesn't really matter because the heart is actually still beating in the queen's chambers. I mean, it's been years, but it is still beating a steady heartbeat. And so, What we realize is that the daughter has spent the last five years hunting people in the forest. And even now, as the queen watches, she is hunting a monk who is walking along the forest path. So at any rate, that is one part of the iconic accoutrements of the queen. But now let's get the the other one, right? The, The poison apple. The queen needs to deal with this vampire problem. I guess that's what queens are for. And so she performs this really great research montage. Then she performs some rituals. And now she has some magically poisoned apples that should do the trick. She goes into the forest. And when she encounters the daughter, she runs away in a panic and she drops the apples. But she had performed a glamour on these apples so that they would be irresistible. And so, although the queen doesn't see what happens, when she returns to the palace, the daughter's heart finally is no longer beating. And so, it seems like the daughter is really, truly dead this time. Though, of course, we'll find out that that's not really the case when we come back. But uh, there's a lot going on in this section, Brent. I'm I'm really taken by the world building here. You probably have some thoughts on that as well. But also, we get a fair bit about how magic works in this world that I found just really evocative. Starting with the world building, just going back to the creatures that visit the fair um, that are from the forest, um, or if you will, fair folk, or if you will, fairies. (laughs) I like that it sets them up. You know, we get the sense here that they are at least perceived to be fair folk in a fairy tale sense by the, the shopkeepers because they are 
securing their wares with iron nails. Traditionally, iron being associated with the thing that fair folk cannot touch, that it'll, you know, burn their flesh or otherwise, you know, prevent them from handling things or the thing you deal with them. And so um, having it, establishing these people as kind of this other fairy tale archetype is a fun bit of world building, but then it is also used to amp up the terror because over the course of five years, there's fewer and fewer of them that are appearing, which means they are being fed on in some way as well. So these, these creatures that can run, you know, ruptured if you don't secure your goods with iron, um, in the village, uh, are themselves being preyed upon by, you know, in theory that the, the vampire daughter now, right? And in addition to that, there also is a fun, I mean, there's a fun bit of, kind of looking at sociopolitical relationship between the people of the village and the people of the forest. Cause as you noted, it could be that these are people who have been ostracized or, you know, maybe ancestrally this was their land and they were kicked off of it. And now they live in the forest, but without those people and without the spring fair, the village and the kingdom are at real risk of economic collapse and that they may not have the food and, and the other goods they need to make it through a winter um, without this support of the fair kind of visiting each spring to include these people who normally, you know, you, you look at half heart, you know, you, you keep your eye on them as they're in your shop and you make sure they're not right. It's just, there's a lot there that you can see in terms of, the different kind of, you know, either class struggle or uh, racism or any number of other things you can layer on that. And it's kind of kept vague enough, again, kind of still the archetypes are at play, right? So you can kind of read into it what you want, but there's just so much world building that is there between weaving elements in, but keeping them kind of nebulous enough that like you can interpret what that means. I think, you know, perhaps of note, other than the daughter and the color of her skin being, you know, pale white, um, as white as snow, uh, you, we don't get indications. I mean, other than the coloring of hair of the father, um, and the, the dead mother, we don't get indications of necessarily of complexions of any of these people too. So that's something you could read into looking at how people in the village may appear versus not. And it's just like, how are you envisioning them? Are they all looking like they're white people or are there, uh, you know, other things at play, which you could layer in or not into the story. You kind of bring your own, <laughs> bring your own cultural assumptions or storytelling ideas into this, which is, it does a great job of again, defining things, but also leaving them loose enough in playing in the archetypes here that I really love. Right. To, to the extent that people are categorized in this story, they, they are categorized around physiology, around things with their bodies, but none of it is skin color with that one exception of Snow, Snow White here, who, of course, again, not actually named that in, in the story, but her, her extraordinarily pale skin, deathly pale skin, as we'll come to find out, is is commented on. But then the way that people are categorized by their bodies in this story is the, the, you know, the short and hairy people are dwarves. There are people with deformed limbs living in the forest, and, and that's really all that we get. And so there are a, a number of different ways that we might read that. And in fact, even a question that I have for you, Brent, just thinking back to uh, 
the pun of fair folk here, you know, is meaning that they're beautiful uh, is what we usually think that means uh, when we're talking about fairies, right? But uh, here meaning uh, it's just people who come to the fair. Do you think that those are sentient beings who are not homo sapiens? The sense I get, although I do have to to pause here to say, in addition to reading this in Smoke and Mirrors, I also was I also read it in the illustrated adaptation that Dark Horse Comics did uh, with the beautiful art of uh, Colleen Duran. So that may have influenced the way I view things a little bit. Um, I kind of saw it as a hodgepodge that so there's a collection, there's a whole bunch of people who come to the fair. That there might be people from neighboring kingdoms who are just traveling merchants, because we do have reference to the fact that there are people who travel through the woods that are preyed upon maybe by brigands or uh, by gypsies. And I'm kind of, in my elaborate world building, these are all distinct groups so that there are maybe dwarves and there may be like fair folk, you know, traditional kind of more elves or fairies um, and sprites and things. But there are also just, you know, humans from the kingdom over or there are human outcasts who live there because they have to because they've been ostracized or by choice, they've decided to live outside of things in a more lawless area that you can be in for good or ill. So there's a whole collection of folk for me. And I'm seeing when I see the year after year, you know, as five years pass and fewer people come, I'm seeing the populations of all those groups in my head get trimmed down until the only ones maybe who are really left are the dwarves. Um, who in this are maybe just kind of more, uh, I'm not even necessarily concentrating on like a height thing here so much as just that the more strange and perhaps kind of vile or maybe alien of, of the group, um, but not the like kind of gleeful, exuberant kind of, you know, traditional fair folk elves, as you said, you know, depicted frequently as beautiful, um, but kind of the whimsical, you know, your manic pixie dream girls have all like been fed on and maybe you're dead now, right? (laughs) And that all that's left is like, you know, the old grizzled men of the, you know, they're you know, the protagonists of Tom Waits songs of like, what's he doing in there, right? That's in my mind who is left because everyone else has been winnowed down. But I'm seeing it as the kind of a vibrant the fair being the one opportunity for there to be actually like a multicultural representative or multiracial representative of things, maybe even from different planes where like, you know, things are emerging from fairy, which is maybe askew from, anyways, just lots of cosmological things that might be going on in my head as I continue to build out this as a kingdom. But, uh, <laughs> that's kind of the way I was viewing it. But, uh, how are you, were you viewing it as that there was kind of one group of people? Yeah, I do think everybody here is a Homo sapien, and including I think the the daughter. Though we'll we'll take that up. I think when we get a few more clues about sort of what does it mean to be a vampire in the story. But yeah, I do think everybody in this story is a Homo sapien. I don't think this is that type of fantasy world where there are Tolkien style dwarves and Tolkien style elves. And I guess that what is evoked for me in in reading the story is something akin to late medieval or early modern Europe, which is the the backdrop of all of these you know, famous fairy tales from Western and Central Europe that have been you know, turned into Disney cartoons that we all have experienced, at least in, in some way. And the 
you know, the use of the title queen and king here, for example, and the the village and even actually the fair itself, these are all, you know, hallmarks of this this time and place. And so, yeah, that's, I think, the sort of sense that I have here is that it's inhabiting that kind of world rather than an actual kind of, you know, high fantasy uh, type of world. But I like that there's room for for both readings of this. But I, I guess in the, the comic adaptation, it, it leans more towards that high fantasy. Some of the fair folk definitely have kind of your pointy ears that you might associate with some kind of elves or dwarves. And, and specifically, actually, then the troublemakers are look like they're some kind of fey creature uh, in some way. The complexion is similar to the other uh, folks who are there, but there's lots of pointy ears. Someday I do want us to take a look at the the comic adaptations or or just the illustrated editions of Neil Gaiman's short fiction. I guess I I have in mind that we'll we'll hit a quorum of those someday. You know, five or six that that have these these editions, and then we that then we can lump into a single episode. Five or six that I mean that we have covered in episodes like this, and and then we can go tackle those adaptations as a a single episode. I think would be a lot of fun. So when we had last left off, you you discussed the. Um, in the recap portion, we had talked about this still beating hard above her bed, which also is just a fun nod, I think, to the, you know, very directly to the telltale heart, right? In which, um, she is responsible for what she had hoped to be the attempted murder of this, uh, of her stepdaughter. It was not actually the murder of her stepdaughter, uh, unfortunately for her. Um, but, uh, we have that beating heart and we'll see that play out a little bit more as, as we go forward. Cause, um, as you said, we've got the, then the great bit of talking about how magic works in which she is intricately doing her rituals as a witch to first of all, see what's going on with the stepdaughter in the woods, but then also to devise the scheme with the apples, which is fun. I think it's a lot, there's a lot more there than we ever got from, I'm thinking of the Disney Snow White adaptation where, you know, the witch just kind of throws on a thing and I don't remember if there's a song or not. I don't think, I think this is pre-song era, but still like there wasn't a lot to it. Uh, <laughs> while this, I get a lot more of a sense of painstaking time and effort. As you said, it was like a research montage in terms of her figuring out what's going on, but also her figuring out how to weave together the spell and then infuse the apples with her blood and also poisons. And I love this montage. It's real dark. I mean, she, she gets naked and goes out at night and like communes with the, the night sky and uh, unseen forces. But she also has to do all this library research. There's a, a book learning component to this as as well as the, the ritual. And I thought it was very cool. Uh, this, this definitely is uh, song era uh, for uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the, the Disney film from 1937. In fact, this is the very first film that actually had a commercially issued soundtrack album, which is something that has uh, been a big part of our lives when we were adolescents. I mean, not Snow White, but soundtrack albums for sure. And uh, this is the first one that uh, that had that. So famous songs that you will now remember as I name them for you, Brent, include Whistle While You Work, uh, yeah, Hi-Ho, right. Someday My Prince Will Come. You know all of these songs. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly. The other thing that is fascinating about this montage of her doing her witchcraft is there are two little bits that slip in here, which reminds you that, you know, perhaps your narrator is not as reliable or at least as biased in the way that they see themselves as we all are biased in the way that we are see ourselves. Um, the one is the description of 
as she is standing there performing the ritual unclothed, quote, had any man seen me standing there, I would have had his eyes, but there was no one to spy. I don't know. If you're going to strip down and someone happens to see you naked, you might be frustrated with them um, because if they linger too long at staring at you. On the other hand, is tearing out their eyes really the fair punishment for the fact that you've decided to strip down and stand on a tall tower? Uh, and then also in the uh, discussion of her applying glamour to herself, she says, Then I cast a glamour on the apples, as once, years before, by a bridge, I had cast a glamour on myself. And so here we have also her kind of admitting to the reader Hey, I may have, you know, used magic to, in some ways, augment or fully ensorcel <laughs> the king <laughs> to find me attractive to begin with. And there's not an indication that she had to keep that magic up for their relationship to work, but it, I don't know. There's some potentially some very dark, you know, rapey vibes to that in some ways, you know, versus – and it may be that or it may not. It may just be like I made myself look a little prettier the way you do, you know, if you – you know, wearing the right cologne may make myself seem more, slightly more attractive, right? Um, or, you know, bothering to fix my hair, right? It could be that that was the glamour or it could be like full on love potion number nine this is not okay <laughs> kind of stuff and we don't know where it is in the spectrum and it's left you know open but either way we have her admitting that her simple tale of just i was 16 and uh you know i was just a girl who didn't know things i was a witch which it's like yeah you were a witch who used glamour when the king happened to be passing by you were prepared for that moment <laughs> Yes, and and she was because she had seen it. You know, she had foreseen the future. So she's been seeing this moment where she's going to encounter the the king, the the widower king on the bridge. She was seeing that in her mirror her whole life. So she knew when it was going to happen, and presumably knew that she needed to use this glamour. All of which is, I think, very interesting. Uh, raises interesting questions about you know the cosmology of time in in this speculative fiction world here too. But yeah, the. The I would have had his eyes is real sinister because for 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 why? Why why would you why would you do that? And also how do you have the power to do that? Like the authority to do that? Would you have actually done it physically yourself, used magic to do it? Would you have ordered someone else to do it? And this really is then giving us a, a version of the queen that is more in keeping with what we get in the fairy tale. And I think in particular in that 1937 Disney film as just being, well, wicked for the sake of wickedness. But previously to this, up to this line, what we have gotten from the tone of this story is that the reason that people have carried out the queen's orders to take the stepdaughter out into the forest and cut out her heart is that they also all know that she's a vampire or some kind of monster and that she's responsible for the death of the king, that they would not otherwise do this to a person just because the queen said so. She clearly doesn't have that kind of authority, or at least doesn't seem to. So yeah, there's, there is something unreliable going on here. There, there, there are some doubts here. Which I like that there's just this tiny bit that's sprinkled in there that really rewards kind of the, you know, 
I don't even know if it's that careful of a reading, but yet just kind of a aware reader can kind of pick up on these like sly little nods to things. Um, and I think it, it, it helps better sell some things we're going to see a little bit later too. So. Right. Let's, uh, let's go get to some of those things and, uh, we'll, we'll take this story home here that we'll have some discussion questions at the end. Now, now, of course, the daughter is not really dead, right? We, we all know that Prince Charming is, is coming to wake her with a, a kiss. And so the question is, you know, what is Gaiman going to do with this element? And Gaiman has the prince visit the queen first. Uh, this prince is on a, a kind of marriage quest, and the queen recognizes the practicality of the match. So she tries to seduce him. Maybe she uses a glamour for this, but it, it doesn't work because when they have sex, what he wants is for her to pretend to be a corpse. And this involves making herself very cold and then lying on the floor very still and keeping her eyes open, but staring lifelessly up to the the ceiling. And most of all, she is not allowed to move. I mean, just not move at all. So this doesn't work out very well. These are difficult instructions, I think, to follow, and it just doesn't work out. And so in the morning, the prince leaves very, very upset. Uh, this is kind of uh, taking his ball and, and going home is really the, the sense that I, I have here, right? But the good news for the prince is that, hey, there is actually a living dead person nearby, uh, just to say the Snow White vampire. Now, the queen is not present for any of this, but she has put some clues together and she realizes now that the dwarves of the forest had built a glass sepulcher for the daughter and were venerating it. And these dwarves, I, I, sh I should say, these were with the daughter when the queen found her. And so, I don't know, maybe they've been turned into ghouls or something like that. But at any rate, the queen is awoken in the night by the sound of the daughter's heart beating again. And what happens next is that the prince and the daughter return to the palace. The daughter enters the queen's chambers, finds her heart, cuts her own chest open, and puts the heart back in. And then the wound instantly heals. And the queen spends the autumn in the dungeon, now it is winter, and it is also now the wedding day of the prince and the daughter. The queen is about to be roasted alive in front of her former subjects, who have, of course, been told malicious lies about her, and uh, these are the lies that have reached us via Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm. And there is nothing that the queen can do, but she will not scream. She will not give Snow White that satisfaction. And that is how the story ends, a, a real masterpiece of a story. And I guess, Brent, just to move into kind of a discussion here, just broadly speaking, how did this story work for you as the retelling of a classic fairy tale? Were there, there elements that you wished that Gaiman had included or, or choices that you especially liked or disliked? I don't think there's anything that anytime I've read the story that I've thought, oh, if only there was more X or more about Y, or if you'd include a different element, I don't think there was a single thing that I would, that I find lacking in the story. I really think it's, it's masterful. And we don't need the details for me of the actual encounter with the huntsman originally that cut out her heart. Um, we get the aftermath of that. We get things from the queen's perspective. And that's kind of enough for me. I think it's really nicely and tautly drawn in a way that I, I really just love. It's a really great story. There's a lot I find really kind of upsetting about it as well, because we've got a protagonist who at the end, you know, meets a terrible fate. Um, although it is not un 
linked to the terrible fate of some of the tellings of the original Snow White story, right? Um, where I believe in one of them, you know, she's captured and she has to wear metal that's been superheated in a fire and dance at the wedding or something like that. And so there's, there's, there's definitely things going on there. It also nicely plays with kind of what we know about the character of Snow White. And I, I kind of want to share some information I have about how Neil lit on this story based on an interview that I found, but I, I want to know what you, what your thoughts are, Glenn. Is there something else that you think you would have wanted a little more of, or a little less of, or that uh, if you were to do your own version, you'd maybe like think about a way to add a wrinkle to it. I, I was actually trying to think about this from uh, with, you know, with my own writing hat on of just thinking, what's another way that I could retell the Snow White story, you know, where it's not a vampire story, but hey, maybe it's a werewolf story or or something like that. And I just felt like there would be no, you know, it might be fun to try that, but there's no need because this is really the perfect the perfect way to do this, right? You know, why is she Snow White? Why is she so pale? Well, it's because she's she's dead. She's a she's a living corpse, right? Uh, you know, why why does she why is she able to stay in this this coffin, this sepulcher, and not actually uh, you know decompose? Well, again, it's because she's a she's a living corpse, right? I think that that's absolutely just perfect. And then I think really. A, a detail that I'm, I'm maybe not necessarily comfortable really discussing in, in great detail on the on the radio, but a detail that really has stuck with me is this necrophilia business, right? I think that you know the especially taking a cue from the the Disney film where it is the kiss itself that awakens Snow White. That doesn't actually appear in any of the uh, the fairy tale versions that we get, but that's that's the Disney romance version of it. And turning that uh, from something sweet and romantic to something that really is is it comes across as as sinister and and again also actually thinking again about rape right the questions of sexual consent here or consent to to sex raised in this story i think that this is a real sinister element that works really well in the story well in addition the the feeding on the father there's a lot of kind of incestuous kind of overlay you know on that relationship um as well particularly in his reaction to crying when specifically the queen tries to pleasure him uh, with her mouth. Um, and that is the thing that causes him to cry and that he has the scars all over himself. It's that's got the necrophilia. We've got necrophilia in the story. We've got an incest in the story. We've got a whole, you know, we've got, you know, matricide in the story. We've got a lot of things in the story. And I really, Love the details about the father that we we get here. I mean, what you're talking about in terms of incest is that we know that we know that his daughter was sinking her sharp teeth into his genitals. And just thinking metaphysically about how do vampires work in this story, I had to wonder, you know, is she only able to bite you in? A, a specific place one time. And uh, this is the reason why he has scars everywhere on his body is that she, she has gotten to the point where there actually isn't any place left on him that she can feed. Uh, that's maybe an interesting question about how vampires work. But I found myself really trying to think about this part of the story from the perspective of the father, because well, I'm, I've become a father myself. It's the first time I've read this story since becoming a father. And we know that one of the abilities that she has, one of the numinous properties that Snow White has and by being a vampire is that she is able to enthrall 
her victims, you know, stare them into submission such that they willingly allow her to to feed. They don't necessarily willingly allow her to bite to begin with, but then they stop resisting uh, once she stares them into submission. But I wondered if the father was not actually giving himself willingly to the daughter to feed on, because even though she is a monster, she is still his daughter, and he wants to to feed her and wants to do that without harming other people. We don't ever get the story from his perspective, but I found myself really thinking about it from his perspective this time. And I think that's one of the great decisions that this is from the perspective of the queen. Um, Cause in addition to just kind of inverting the traditional snow white story and us getting, you know, the wicked queen, wicked stepmother's view is that we don't have the view of the father and that, as you said, even though this is a monster, this is his daughter. And it's all also that's left of the union that he had with his former wife, who he loved. And so there's, you know, all the memories of her kind of wrapped up in this as well. As to the interview that I, I mentioned, um, I found uh, on a site called allaboutromance.com an interview that Neil had done with them in um, April of 1999, in which he was talking about – he talked about many things. He talks about Sandman and Stardust and, and other things throughout. But the bit about uh, this particular story, uh, he's explaining that he was reading uh, Penguin's Book of English Folktales, and he was kind of thinking over the story of Snow White. And here's what he has to say. There was this moment when I said to myself, what kind of prince sees a corpse in a glass coffin and says, oh boy, I'm in love. I'm going to have her. I'm taking her back home with me. This is seriously kinky. This is rather depraved. Having thought that, I thought, well, what kind of young lady can you put in a coffin with skin as white as snow, lips as red as blood, and hair as black as coal for a couple of years who isn't going to die? Once I thought that through, the entire story was there, and I got to tell this sort of monstrous story of this little vampire Snow White and this necrophiliac prince and this poor woman, possibly not quite as blameless as she makes out, but is certainly maligned by history. And so I told the story from the point of view of the Wicked Witch. It was a delight. So, um, again, I commend everyone to go to the allaboutromance.com website. Um, you can find this interview, uh, with Neil Gaiman from 1999, where he talks about Sandman and other things as well, but, uh, talks a lot about comic book legal defense fund, um, and, uh, the importance of, uh, free expression and free speech as part of that as well. But, but this is a, a, f- a fun kind of encapsulation of like, you look at something and he, and the run of this, he says, you know, you can look at things many times and then eventually you light on seeing it a different way. Um, and so this is where you look at it and you're like, yeah, as you said, Glenn, kind of the a prince happens on someone who's passed out, who's in the woods and is just like, I'm going to kiss that person. <laughs> right. Yeah. Something, something is not right there. Something yeah. is not right there. Um, cause of consent and something is not right there because, uh, dead or death-like like there's a lot of things that have to be wrong like you know the, the vampire is the 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 metaphysical monster in this but the prince is the human monster in this story to me because it's just like that's a person who doesn't care for consent and also is a necrophiliac like <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. And one one wonders what his backstory is. We don't ever get it. We don't know his name again because everybody's an archetype here. Gaiman's relying on the fact that, of course, we're all familiar at least a little bit with the the Snow White story from from some version of it. But yeah, this I, I guess if I were you know, not so much going to retell this story with some other gimmick than what Gaiman has done, but were to expand on this story, I guess, you know, that's maybe a fun exercise. You know, how might Gaiman have expanded this into a novel, which I think could could be done, you know, would be to give us more backstories about some of these characters. I think the father is a really compelling character, but this prince, what is his deal? Uh, I want to know more. Well, you you mentioned this uh, Penguin Book of English Folk Tales. Uh, Gaiman does write about this as well in the introduction to Smoke and Mirrors. Uh, This is a book uh, collected by uh, Neil Phillip that uh, reprints other versions of uh, of English folk tales that he has collected by looking at uh, some printed editions, but also just some manuscripts around England. But uh, before we talk about that specifically, I just want to know, Brent, a little bit more about your own history, actually, with the Snow White story, other versions of Snow White. Uh, have you read fairy tale versions from, you know, I don't know, maybe this Penguin Book of English Folk Tales or the Grimm Brothers? You you have seen the Disney film for sure, even though you didn't remember there were any <laughs> songs in it. Uh, but there are other movies as well. H- how many of those have you seen? I, I certainly saw the Disney version. Um, I think I saw probably clips of the more recent one with uh, Kristen Stewart, but not enough of it that I really recall any of it. And I'm I'm sure that I read the Grimm Brothers version when I was probably a teenager, but I I haven't uh, exhaustively read them. And I don't think I've ever read this particular book of English folktales. But have you uh, recently or do you remember, you know, reading a a version or seeing a version put to to film or to, to play or anything that particularly sticks with you? Yes, of course. I've seen the the Disney film, the 1937 Disney film, a bunch of times when I was a kid. It was it was never in my top five Disney film list. I mean, Pinocchio was always you know number number one, and then maybe the the Robin Hood with the foxes, and you know. But this was one that I saw a lot. I think you know maybe younger siblings were more into this one than than I was. But I've have read the the Grimm Brothers, you know, when I was a kid as well. And there are other film adaptations. I don't know that I've ever seen any of them either. There was actually one that came out while we were in high school with Sigourney Weaver, I guess, in the role of the Queen. I'm, I'm actually surprised we didn't go see that. It, seems like the sort of thing that we would have gone to see especially since that is also when we were reading this story a lot but we just never we just never did but snow white has been in my life recently because i have a child and uh, uh, we have a, a series of board books that retell the these classic fairy tale stories that most of us encounter through disney films first but that uh, most of them ultimately coming from uh, the the brothers grimm and so i have a board book edition of snow white it's part of the once upon a world series the the text is by Chloe Perkins. The illustrations are by Misa Saburi. This is a book that Finch and I have read quite a bit. It's not his favorite from this series. Not his least favorite either. That's The Little Mermaid, which he just has has zero interest in. I think the uh, the Cinderella and Rapunzel versions are the the ones that he he likes the best. But I have I don't know I guess read a version a board book version of the Snow White story a, a hundred or more times in the last two years. So it's been on my mind maybe a little more than it has been on yours recently. But I did do my homework for this episode. So I went and got a copy of the book that Gaiman mentions in that interview and in the introduction here. This uh, Neil Philip Penguin book of English folk tales. I have reread the version from the 
Grimm Brothers, but I should say that there are actually multiple versions from the Grimm Brothers. So if you just, you know, go on Amazon or go into a bookshop and buy the Brothers Grimm, you know, collected fairy tales, you are almost certainly going to get the final version from 1857. Uh, This is the one that Disney used for the movie as well. It's really the one that we all know. But the first version of this story is from 1812, and it has a lot of differences with the, the final version that we know. The Biggest difference is that the queen is not a stepmother. She's actually the biological mother, and that this is uh, killing your own child uh, because she happens to be be becoming more beautiful than you. Uh, the mother is killed by Snow White and the prince. I mean, this is in both versions of the the Grimm. Uh, this is in both Grimm versions here. But as you mentioned earlier, Brent, she is killed by being forced to wear metal shoes and then dance over a fire and. Uh, that's something we've encountered in Neil Gaiman before, right? This is something Breschow had people do, which uh, I, I didn't think about that. I, that was a deep cut that we missed when we were doing Season of Mist, but that was a Snow White reference, I guess. I am now uh, telling in my head a version of the story in which uh, it is the father, Breschow, who is uh, <laughs> actually the wicked one. Um, although I feel like he's the opposite, or at least maybe the aspect of him that ends up in hell is the one who fully embraces that he is the villain of the story. Um, uh, even if at the end, Lucifer is like, whatever, <laughs> your your child's more of a monster. <laughs> well, I don't think it's, I don't think he would be the dad, right? He would be the prince. He's the necrophiliac oh, prince, yeah. right? And and actually, I think it makes a lot of sense. So that's all kind of going into my headcanon. Oh, that, that's where he, he came from. And then I did also read this version from the Penguin Book of English Folktales, which is a lot of fun. This version of Snow White was uh, collected in the West Riding of Yorkshire in September 1914. It was collected by a folklorist named T.W. Thompson. And the the manuscript for this was never published in an edition, but the, the manuscript for this is housed at the Brotherton Library in Leeds. And Leeds is a place where I lived for a year when I was doing my uh, PhD work. Uh, Leeds is in the West Riding of Yorkshire. And the story is told in the dialect of the West Riding of Yorkshire. So I had so much joy reading this five pages in this dialect, uh, just seeing the name of this library where I have written big chunks of my PhD dissertation uh, was just phenomenal. So I just thank Neil Gaiman uh, for that. <laughs> just uh, sending me down this uh, this rabbit hole was fantastic. But the thing that I really just want to bring up here, a detail that is not actually from the Grimm brothers, but that is from this version. And it's one, a detail that Gaiman has incorporated into his own story is that although Gaiman clearly has used this dancing on the coals while wearing metal shoes bit in the Sandman here in snow glass apples, the queen is being roasted alive in like a a roasting dish. And that is actually how this version of the story, this Yorkshire version of Snow White ends. And so I think Gaiman has taken that element. And I, I think it is maybe a more, it's, it's less sinister, but gives us room for the, the queen to be, you know, telling us, I guess, this story while she's waiting for the, you know, the fire to heat up. That doesn't quite work, you know, if what she has to do is dance on hot coals. So it's a, it's a great touch. One thing that I, and I didn't, there's not a way I would retell the story, but I was trying to think, I've thought for a little bit about running a Curse of Strahd campaign for Dungeons and Dragons. And I thought, what if I, instead of having Strahd, 
took these characters and put them in there. And I, I've really kind of struggled with this because I've been like, okay, the problem is uh, with the way that normally you conceive of Ravenloft domains historically is that Strahd is the villain of the piece in A Curse of Strahd campaign, but the kingdom that he occupies is also meant as a place to torture himself. So I've tried to envision, is there a way to you know, instead of Strahd have Snow White be the villain, but I thought that doesn't really work because Snow White is not ever really tortured. I mean, maybe she is, I guess her heart is taken out and hung above a bed. Um, but maybe if you have a less charitable reading of the story of the stepmother that kind of meets halfway between this short story and kind of more of the traditional fare, which maybe, you know, she has a terrible end, but she's also a terrible actor in a number of places prior to that. And you sub in her for Strahd, but then you also have in the woods of Barovia, you have this snow white vampire that the characters also at some point maybe have to defeat, or maybe they can't defeat because she literally is immortal and maybe the land resurrects her. But that's part of the tragic story that you can get to unfold um, is to learn from fragments here and there, essentially this story um, of how the queen maybe did some things she should not have done, but kind of spirals to do more and more wicked things to try to save herself from this fate that maybe she continues to to face um, kind of iteratively um, throughout time. But I, I don't know. Um, I know you don't spend as much time thinking about how to, how to DM things as I do, Glenn, um, in, in recent years. Um, but if you were to strad this, how would you strad this one? Yeah, just off the top of your head. Uh, yeah, I, I love this. Let me back this up just a little bit for listeners and just explain a little bit more about Ravenloft, yes. though it is something we have talked about on the air before, not on this show. But Ravenloft is a D&D campaign setting. It's the the horror setting for D&D. And it has lots of different realms within it that are all more or less inspired by the, the great classic works of horror fiction. So, you know, you do get uh, some mad scientist stuff taking its cue from Frankenstein. There's some werewolf stuff. And then there's also vampire stuff. And uh, that's really the Strahd is essentially Count Dracula and the Curse of Strahd campaign is essentially the retelling of Dracula, except transposing it into a kind of uh, fantasy realm rather than 19th century Europe, right? But uh, And it's, it's something you and I loved a lot in high school. And this fantasy realm is one that the characters get sucked into against their will and they're unfamiliar and unfamiliar setting, but they cannot leave unless they find a way to defeat Strahd who again is the land itself exists as a way to kind of eternally torture him. It's kind of a reflection of he is a bad person who has done bad things, but also he himself is kind of, you know, Gothic romance sense is also this, you know, misunderstood, tortured person. Um, so he is an antagonist, but also you're supposed to feel some amount of sympathy on a level, although ultimately really kill him. So this idea of like, how do you have, you know, the antagonist could be any number of these characters from this, um, could be the, the prince as well, um, versus um, how you set up that whoever it is, is also being tortured by having to relive something. Um, and so maybe it is the queen who has to find herself in this pot. So is eternally trying to find a way to kill the stepdaughter 
Well, I don't have a real answer for the question you you asked me, which is you know to think about how I might do this if I were going to DM a campaign. But I, I like the idea I think that you've you've hit on here, which is that you know so Ravenloft has these little pocket realms that all are essentially inspired by classic works of horror from mostly the 19th century. But I like that you know you could actually do the same thing with the discrete stories of these early modern fairy tales that we get you know from the the brothers Grimm, Hans Christian Andersen, Charles Perrault in in France and and uh uh Andrew Lang in England. I mean, you know, there's almost an almost inexhaustible supply of these things. You could make each of them their own little pocket realm and then have them all connected you know or border this this massive forest, right? And and I, I think there's a sense actually in which the world that Gaiman has built here feels like that is actually what he's done, even though we never get beyond the borders of this particular kingdom, uh, I guess with the exception of the, the forest, if we're thinking about the forest that way. But that is a campaign setting that someone should someone should do. I think that would be awesome. Well, on the forums, maybe I'll continue to discuss and play out what I might try to do, and maybe I'll even actually try to put it in action. The thing I hadn't considered until you mentioned it, um, and when we were talking about Brashaw, is perhaps it's just that Strahd is the prince, and he happens to be a necrophiliac. And so he is the one who stumbled into this little you know, drama that was already playing out and cursed himself because of his necrophilia. Um, and so maybe that's a way to approach it. Yeah, I love I love this idea. And if you do put this in action, I you know we have listeners who who ask from time to time if if we you know as a network you know would have any interest in doing even as a one shot thing, uh, some kind of role playing episode. I mean, not where we discuss role playing, but where we actually you know uh, do an actual play thing. So there might be some interest in that if you if you develop this. And uh, so yeah, definitely put something on the forum and uh, at least keep our audience posted there. I, I want to take us in a, a different direction here, Brent, in thinking about. You know what Gaiman is up to in this story, where this is a you know a speculative fiction retelling of a fairy tale. This for me was the first time that I encountered this. Right when we read this story in high school, this was the first time that I had run into this idea at all. But having gotten older, having read quite a bit more, I realized now that this was actually quite a big movement in the eighties and nineties, with with Gaiman really just being one part of it. Uh, you know, something we were definitely aware of in high school. But I don't really remember them being a big part of you know the glue of our friendship at any rate. Uh, was this series of books edited by Ellen Datlow and Terry Windling, the first of which was Snow White, Blood Red, that came out in 1993. That was just a collection of exactly this sort of thing. That specific book actually has Gaiman's story Trollbridge, which is another one that we really love, a, a mutual favorite of ours, I, I think. Uh, but there was. A whole series of these. There were six in total. The last one was published in 2000. But there were other people doing this sort of thing as well. Uh, Ellen Kushner, Jane Yolen, Nancy Cress. But all of it really goes back to Angela Carter, who was actually doing this sort of thing in the 1970s and was a big influence on Neil Gaiman. This is something that uh, Elisa Quitney and I talked about in the the episode that uh, she very generously came on to to do with me. But I just don't know, Brent, if you have read a lot of this sort of thing, or, or if Neil Gaiman is really the limit of your experience with this kind of retelling of fairy tales like this. 
Um, I've read some. Um, Snow White Blood Red, actually, uh, <laughs> my faulty memory had it that this story was also in that collection. I couldn't remember what was in it. So thank you for reminding me that it was Trollbridge that was in it. Because um, I was trying to find, and somewhere in this house, is my copy of Snow White Blood Red. I'm not sure. I think that I, I, I read all of that anthology. And I think that I may have checked out from our library the second volume, but I don't think I read the subsequent ones. Um, I am used to from, you know, the nineties and looking heavily at role-playing game supplements, particularly for vampire, the masquerade, which we've talked about elsewhere before. I feel like there's a lot of short riffs on these things. I mean, ultimately it is kind of <laughs> fairy tales are the ultimate and original fan fiction in many ways. Um, in that people would just periodically retell these stories and then change them a little bit. But you're right that there definitely was this movement in weird fiction in the latter half of the 20th century, particularly to take these traditional stories and kind of do twists on them. And I think part of that was probably driven by in you know, the cultural landscape of having the Disney films um, kind of bringing to the fore these stories, but also asserting that, like, this is the story. So you could easily play on these are the tropes that people expect, but let's kind of invert them or change one thing um, and kind of leverage that as a shorthand. But also these are all works that are, um, despite how much the Walt Disney company may like otherwise, these are not copyrighted things, right? So <laughs> you are free to riff on them the way you are not free to riff on Mickey Mouse yet. And the way we keep on extending copyright protections for Mickey Mouse in this country, uh, don't know when we'll be able to do that. Yeah, and and Star Wars and Marvel and everything else Disney owns now, right? And everything else they own, but uh, but it, it lets us have something where there is the common like every like everyone knows who Batman is, but you, there's only so much of a riff on Batman you can do without changing his name at least, and then he's you know Bat Thing, right? But you can actually <laughs> have Snow White and call it Snow White, and you know the Disney attorneys may try to come after you, but you can cite all of these wonderful things for hundreds of years before that would say. You do not own that. Um, so I think it lets you shorthand things and lets, and also, you know, the fairy tales do give us kind of these kind of almost original, closer to platonic ideals of these tropes and archetypes that we, um, can again play off of. You can, you can take advantage of the fact that your audience is coming with certain expectations that you and I are coming expecting that, you know, we come into the story thinking, the wicked stepmother queen is wicked and that snow white is the person who we want to champion. Like we want to be the prince to snow white, but by the end of the story, as we've talked about snow white is a vile monster and the prince is as much, if not maybe even more so a vile monster. Cause he is not, you know, seemingly born with his predilections, or at least he should know better than to try to indulge them and to have his, you know, merry men with swords, you know, cook this poor queen in a pot, right? Yeah, though I, w I would read that story too, a kind of uh, Sopranos uh, <laughs> retelling of, <laughs> of, of Neil Gaiman's retelling of Snow White is uh, actually something I think I definitely need. But yeah, I don't have a lot of experience with this movement either. I read that volume that you're, you're talking about, the, the Snow White Blood Red, because you had it in the basement. These books all had gorgeous covers. I, I'm afraid I don't know who did the art, but it's the, I think the same artist who did all the covers as well for the year's best fantasy and horror that 
Ellen Datlow and Terry Windling were editing in those years that I always picked up. But I remember seeing these in the the bookshop, our local bookshop, Anderson's, and and you know really wanting them, but only read the one that you had in in the basement. And I would actually like to read more of these. And I'd like to read more Angela Carter as well, who I only know at all because Brandon and I had a commission from a, another listener to cover one of her stories on Elder Sign, and we both really loved it. And it wasn't a retelling of a specific fairy tale, but it was a, a retelling of a, a vampire story, actually kind of a vampire princess story. And it was wonderful, gorgeously written. And you could see the way that that story had a big influence on Gaiman. And so yeah, at some point, I'd like us to actually maybe to dive into Angela Carter a little bit and maybe check out one of these other stories in Snow White, Blood Red or something like that, just to you know broaden out the, the context for, for Gaiman's work that we've been doing, I think would be, would be really useful. And uh, the artist of the first one was, um, I just looked it up while you were talking, Tom Canty. Who did the um, the cover art for Snow White Blood Red, um, which really is some great art. The other thing that came to mind that I it wasn't quite the same, but it was kind of adjacent. To this obviously vampires very much in vogue during you know the era, um, and this particular short story does appear in Poppy Z Bright's Love in Vain Two, which is an anthology collection just of vampire stories. And I remember I somewhere again, I think in this house, even I still have Love in Vain One. I don't know if I ever had two, but Poppy Z Bright's Lost Souls 1992 novel is still one of my favorite kind of vampire um, novels just leaning heavily into the gothic tropes of the late eighties and early nineties with the vampire retelling, um, in an extremely fairly erotic way in a lot of ways. So a lot of great stuff that Poppy Z bright happened to produce. Um, and it might be worth at some point, either you and I, or you and Brandon, if, if you've got the wherewithal, or maybe it's an ATOS thing, cause it's a book is just like reading lost souls. Um, and, um, seeing how well it holds up or doesn't. Yeah, I've thought about it. I mean, this was a book that that certainly made the rounds in our friend group in high school and and looms large in my memory, but I haven't actually read it since we were teenagers. So yeah, that that also is a project that would be a ton of fun. Let's uh let's close this episode out, Brent, by by turning back to, to game and getting back actually into the text of the story here and just talk about some some favorite passages. What was the passage here that uh, stood out to you the most, impacted you the most? There are so many great ones, but the one that reminds me of why I find this story the most unsettling, and I sometimes don't like revisiting it, the line is, quote, They have told the people bad things about me, a little truth to add savor to the dish, but mixed with many lies. And the reason why I find that kind of off-putting is because history is told by the winners. In other ways, history is also gossip about dead people uh, told by the winners. But it's the ability for lies to spread very easily based on what you maybe want to hear because it aligns with what your belief is, um, or because it's hard to get accurate firsthand information about things, or it requires any effort to do it. And in kind of a attention span of five seconds, you know, culture that we have in part, you know, perhaps because of all the devices we have spitting content at us constantly. It's, it's just the ease with which a mob can be turned against someone. And it's something that I'm kind of always constantly have a visceral reaction to and kind of a fear of. I'm not afraid of crowds, 
but I am kind of afraid of crowds. And this line um, and this part of the story is what I kind of remember. It's it's not that the queen, the terrible thing that happens to her is terrible and it would feel horrible. But the terrible thing that isn't mentioned is the fact that the prince got his, you know, merry men, band of brothers, whatever, to go along with him. But then they were able to just knock on her door. There was no reference to the fact that they had to fight their way through the palace, nor is there a mention. Um, and in fact, it's explicitly that like the people think ill of her and she's paraded through the streets naked at this point and people are like spitting at her and stuff. And I'm imagining like, you know, Game of Thrones when you've got Cersei having to do her walk. Well, and I have the sense in the story that the reason that they keep the queen in the dungeon for an entire season or maybe even as much as half a year is so that this gives them time to control the narrative, to spread the lies about her, to explain where she is and why that's where she is and and so on, that this is why they don't just execute her right away. They have to actually convince people, uh, convince her subjects that they they should want her to be executed and uh, to tell this story about how Snow White is the one who's been wronged here, that the story is not that the queen tried to protect you all from a vampire. No, no, no. That's not what happened at all. I really like that element of this story. What was your favorite passage, or at least the one that stuck with you most upon the, the current reading of this story? I love that you went with the passage that had you know, implications about, well, I think the way that we consume media and news now and has implications for government and rule. I went with something that is uh, nature writing and also world building, which are my real proclivities, the things that I'm going to literature for. So this paragraph is on page 329 of Smoke and Mirrors, and it's this. The forest is a dark place, the border to many kingdoms. No one would be foolish enough to claim jurisdiction over it. Outlaws live in the forest. Robbers live in the forest. And so do wolves. You can ride through the forest for a dozen days and never see a soul. But there are eyes upon you the entire time. And I, I just love the, the spookiness of this, the eeriness of this. I... I I feel like this forest is, you know, a world unto itself. Twelve days. I said walking earlier, but obviously the text says riding, so it's even bigger than I presented it, you know, an hour ago when we were talking about this. And I just, I just love this description. It just, it's so evocative for me. It just fills my imagination, and I, I really do want there to be more of a a world here. I want Neil Gaiman to you know, return to this story and flesh out an entire world in this forest, around this forest, and give me some sprawling epic high fantasy, a thing Gaiman has never written, uh, and, and in this world. That, that's, I think, I don't know, it's getting high up on my list of things I want Neil Gaiman to, to write, which is kind of what this podcast is for. I just hope someday he listens to it and, and uh, decides to write one of these books or stories for me. It's, it's a really great passage, and it particularly it envisions the idea when it mentions robbers and outlaws, you're imagining maybe that Robin Hood and his merry men are out there. It says wolves, you're imagining you know, Red Riding Hood has to journey through the forest to get to her grandmother's house, and she's encountering wolves there. But it's also got that great bit at the end where it, you know, about their eyes upon you the entire time. And as someone who enjoys being outside in forests, as I think both you and I do, um, there is something about being in a forest where on the one hand, I feel the most alone if there's no one within sight. On the other hand, 
you're not sure you're ever alone because there's so much visually that is partially blocking your view. And also that, you know, things that are maybe in the branches above you or things that are just blending in that your eyes are losing sight of because of the, the natural way that creatures, you know, have the camouflage essentially. The forest at night is really, you know, where things come to life at the edges of things, um, at least for me and I think for you as well, um, based on where we used to wander at night as kids. Um, <laughs> and that's where these things can run loose in our imagination, where it could be behind any given tree, not like a distance off, but like literally within arm's reach. There could be any number of, you know, strange or marvelous creatures or even just commonplace creatures that have their own individual sense or, you know, belief or instinct to love or hate or feed or run or any number of things. And it's really playing on the power of a forest. And I think expansive forests are one of those great things that are a fun trope filled area where you can see in a lot of fiction and in a lot of, there's just a lot you can have in there. Um, so yeah, it's, it's some great world building. Well, I think that is a good note on which to bring this episode to a close and leave us yearning for, for more Neil Gaiman stories, which of course we will get to do. But for now, I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. I want to thank our listener and Patreon supporter who commissioned this episode one more time. Uh, we, we had a blast reading this story. I, I hope, hopefully people can tell we had a blast talking about this story. We look forward to, to doing more. So thank you so much for that generosity and for the, the impetus to revisit this story that we both love so much. So next time here on Hanging Out with the Dream King, we will be back with The Flying Stars by G.K. Chesterton, yeah, going to take a look at one of Gaiman's other influences. I'm very, very excited about that. And until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>